It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 175 for January 10th, 2010 was recorded on January 8th, 2010, but not in a snowstorm. The snow has stopped temporarily. Whenever I think about computer backups, my first thought is cost. It's easy to think about hardware as being valuable. After all, you spent several hundred or several thousand dollars to obtain the hardware. But hardware is easy to replace. You may have it insured. The data that's stored on the hard disks cannot be easily replaced, and that's why you need insurance for it. In this case, the name of the insurance is Backup. You already know that I'm a fan of Carbonite, an online backup service that costs about $50 per year per computer and backs up all the data on any internal hard drive. But Carbonite really isn't enough all by itself. Carbonite doesn't back up the operating system, programs, and a lot of other areas that you'll need in the event of a catastrophic failure. And if you need to restore everything from backup, keep in mind that Carbonite works at the speed of your Internet connection. Carbonite is a wonderful service. It can provide access to your files from any computer. It is, in fact, the best option available if you accidentally delete a file or a directory. But you need more. For me, that more is a Cronus true image and always sync. To lose data, three systems would need to fail simultaneously. A local hot backup regularly receives copies of the files that I'm working on. The files are stored on a 500 gigabyte USB drive that sits beside the computer. And I use AlwaySync to analyze the files and place copies on that backup drive. This drive has a single reason for existing. If something goes wrong with the desktop computer, I can unplug the USB drive, attach it to a notebook computer, and continue working as if nothing had happened. In a few cases, some files are so critically important that I take one additional step. Files that contain settings or passwords are backed up to Carbonite, to the hot backup drive, to an Acronis drive, and finally to an FTP site. AlwaySync handles the FTP transaction, too. Now, although these files are stored on my web server, they are encrypted with a very strong password, and they are stored outside the web route. To steal the information, a crook would need the username and password for the server, the location of the directory where the files are stored, and the encryption credentials. I think they're pretty safe. The key to a quick recovery in the event of a disk failure or some other catastrophe is a Cronus true image. What's interesting about this program segment is that I had it written about up to this point when something interesting happened. My computer suddenly told me when I rebooted it, this copy of Windows is not genuine. That's a message you don't want to see. But it's one that I saw after I uninstalled one of several antivirus programs that I'd been testing. I've seen similar messages in the past, and the fix usually involves simply reactivating Windows, but not this time. Or, at worst, calling Microsoft support so that they can reset the activation key. Also, not this time. 
Despite the fact that it was 8 p.m. on New Year's Day, Microsoft support was open. But after two hours of tinkering, we were no closer to making my copy of Windows genuine than we had been when I called. The technician suggested that I perform an in-place upgrade from Windows 7 to Windows 7. He thought that might fix the corruption. Okay, I figured I'd try it. I started the process from within Windows. It failed. I then rebooted to the DVD and started the process directly from the DVD. And it failed, in both times citing corruption. Assuming that I might have to just reinstall Windows on January 2nd, I went to bed. But I had an Acronis TrueImage backup. The problem was almost certainly a registry problem, or something that Microsoft had written somewhere on the disk, something that was corrupted by the incessant adding and removing of antivirus programs. So, on Saturday morning, I drove to the office and returned with a Seagate free agent drive that contained an image of the C drive on my computer and an emergency boot CD that I had created after installing a Cronus True Image. Before booting to the CD, I opened Photoshop and deactivated Alien Skin's blow-up, bokeh, and SnapArt 2. Then I deactivated the entire Adobe CS4 suite. As the computer booted the Acronis emergency disk, I used the notebook computer to examine the documentation on the Acronis site. After all, I had never had to do this for real, and my goal was to get it right. It's important to validate the backup image before proceeding to actually do the restore. If you don't do that and the restore fails, nothing will remain on the C drive. Well, the validation completed without error, and a little over an hour later, I was able to start my genuine copy of Windows 7. The computer was exactly as it had been on December 13th, about half a month before. All that remained was to install the few Windows updates that had arrived since then and to restore a few files that were stored on the C drive. Fortunately, most of my data files are stored on other drives. They hadn't been touched by the restore process. When I opened Photoshop, it was already activated, as I thought it would be. I did have to manually activate the Alien Skin plugins, but that took only a few seconds. So in about the amount of time that I had wasted on the phone with a Microsoft technician, I had driven to the office returned with my backup drive, and restored Windows to a fully functional state. Within an hour after that, I had reinstalled a couple of applications that had been installed in the second half of December, and restored a few files either from Carbonite or from my USB hot backup device. That, in short, is why we have backups. And it's why I was able to complete writing this article on January 2nd, instead of spending the entire day reinstalling Windows. The bottom line on a Cronus true image as a data saver? Well, after an experience such as I just had, how could I help but award a Cronus true image TechBiter's top award? Intellectually, I have known how important backup is. But recovering quickly from a nasty situation is enough to thoroughly internalize that knowledge. For more information, you can take a look at the Acronis website, and you'll find a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Sometimes an operating system such as Windows becomes so badly damaged that the only solution is to reinstall it. 
This is a scary prospect because it involves formatting the drive, which destroys all programs and data on the computer. And that's why I just talked about backup. The process involves a lot of steps, and you'll probably spend a lot of hours working on the computer. You should plan on spending even more time in preparation. It is the preparation that will allow you to save your data. The key is not to start until you're certain that you have everything you need to recover from what is the computer equivalent of brain surgery. Here's a question I received. I'm hoping to reformat my hard drive by the end of the year while I'm off. I understand it can be very time-consuming. I'm running Windows XP Pro on a Dell Dimension 8400 Intel Pentium 4 CPU 3.4 gigahertz with 1 gigabyte of RAM and a 230 gigabyte hard drive, 80 gigabytes used. I use Mozilla Thunderbird as my email, also have a Yahoo account, and use Gmail sometimes. I have Picasa to keep all my pictures, but also have them in the my documents folder. I use Sonic Record Now version 7.3 to do most of my recording. Basically, some of my questions are how do I back up, for example, Thunderbird? I know that it's on my hard drive. Also, my favorites, addresses, things like that. What would you look for when backing up to do this project? And when I start a backup, how can I get away from loading all that junk that Dell put on there when I purchased the computer? By the way, it's going on three and a half to four years old right now. So as I said, that was a question from a listener. A long question. It leads to an even longer answer. Fortunately, the formatting and reinstalling part isn't particularly difficult, and it need not be too time-consuming. It will take you a day or so in most cases, because you're going to have to reinstall a lot of things. You should be able to complete the process, though, in really a day or maybe a little less. You already know that you're going to lose everything on the drive, so it's important to back up everything you might possibly need later. It wouldn't be unreasonable to spend $100 or so for an external hard drive and to back up the entire system to that drive. That way you'll be able to recover files that you might otherwise miss. Been there, done that. Dell may provide a recovery CD or a full Windows CD. The recovery CD is more likely, and using it will reinstall all of the junk that came with the computer. That's one of the primary reasons that I purchase computers from the computer room, TCR, out in Pickerington. You'll receive a standard Windows installation CD or DVD for the machine, and it's not going to come loaded with craplets. If you've installed any new hardware that requires special drivers, be sure that you have them readily available. Also make sure that you have the CDs or DVDs for any applications you've installed, or that you have the downloads and license keys for any applications you've purchased and downloaded. Some applications, such as most of the Adobe applications, for example, require that you transfer the license if you format the drive, So you need to take a few minutes to confirm the policies of all your software providers. That time will be well spent. At the very least, back up the My Documents folder if you save files there. If you save them elsewhere, be sure to back up those directories. Save your favorites or bookmarks from whatever browsers you use. And if more than one person has an account on the computer, each of them will have a My Documents folder and a Favorites or Bookmarks section. You mentioned you use Thunderbird for email, so you'll need to back up the profile folder. And I have the location of that directory listed on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you haven't saved everything to an external drive, then back up all the files you'll need to CDs or DVDs. But I really have to recommend using an external hard drive. I can't tell you how many times I have found that I forgot about an important file and then had to retrieve it from backup. Now would also be a good time to confirm the disk structure. Right-click My Computer on the desktop and choose Manage. 
Select Storage from the left column, then Disk Management. You'll see a visual representation of all your hard drives. In this case, it'll just be one. Each physical drive will be on a line by itself and will show one or more logical drives, specific colored areas of that line. If there's only one partition per drive or one large partition and one tiny partition, you can safely format the drive. If you have multiple drives or multiple partitions, you might want to consider having a professional take it from that point. It's very easy to format the wrong drive. Check once again to confirm that you have saved everything you'll need. It is extremely easy to forget about data from a program you need only a few times a year. This is really why I recommend a full backup. Consider that the voice of experience. Once you're there, it's time to pull the trigger. The specific steps here pertain to Windows XP, but the general outline is the same for other versions of the operating system. Don't format the drive unless you have the time to do the job right. Make sure that you read and understand every message the computer displays. Once, when I didn't pay attention to a critical message, I accidentally formatted the data disk instead of the disk with the operating system and programs. A full system backup saved the day, but I really would have preferred not to have made that mistake. So now take a deep breath, place the Windows CD installation disk in the drive, and reboot the computer. If you see press any key to boot from CD... Press a key and the computer will boot from the disk and start the installation process. If you have a recovery disk from the manufacturer, what you see from this point forward may not be what I describe here. This description assumes a standard Windows installation disk. The disk will load and eventually you'll see press enter to set up Windows XP. After you press enter, the installer will ask where you want to install Windows. You'll see a list of all the drives and partitions that exist on the computer. Highlight the partition where Windows was installed previously. Press the D key to delete the partition. You'll be asked to provide the disk name, which will be displayed. So type that in and press Enter. Press L to confirm the deletion if you're asked to do that. At this point, the installer will ask you again where to install Windows. In the lower half of the screen, you should see Unpartitioned Space. Select this and press C to create a new partition. The default will be the maximum size, and that's probably what you want, so just press Enter. After a few minutes, the screen will display a new partition that says C, Partition 1, New, Raw, and it'll list the size in megabytes. Select that and press Enter. Next, you'll be asked if you want the file system to be FAT or NTFS. Choose NTFS. Select Format. If Quick is shown, select that. It's as the name suggests, faster. The normal installation process will continue from here. Depending on the speed of the computer, a Windows XP installation usually takes 30 to 60 minutes. When the operating system installation is complete, you'll need to reinstall the applications. You'll need the installation disks for that or the downloaded files. You'll also need license keys, and you'll need to activate the operating system and some of the applications, the Microsoft and Adobe applications, for example. Once you've done that, you can restore the settings and data from backup. The full backup is important because if you're anything like me, you will have forgotten a crucial settings file or a data file for at least one application. Good luck. In Short Circuits, first a program note. There will be an extra item after Short Circuits this time. It's kind of an esoteric article, one that probably won't interest a lot of people. That's why it's at the far end of the program. But when Short Circuits is over, there is one more item. 
Marshall Thompson, the head honcho at the computer room, passed along an interesting tip this week. If you're a Windows 7 user, you can create a new directory and give it a really strange name. When you do that, the icon immediately changes to the control panel icon, and the directory contains everything that's in the control panel with more granular control and a bunch of other utilities. If you look on the web, you'll find references to this as the Windows 7 God Mode. That's because the directory has the name God Mode and then a GUID after it. And before you go too far with thoughts of the God within the machine, I thought it might be a good idea to explain that the plain English part of the name is really unimportant. What counts is the GUID. That's the part that follows the plain English name, and it's placed in braces. A GUID is a very long string of letters and numbers. So actually, you can name the directory anything you want, including something a bit more sinister, like, oh, say, for example, Satan's Playground. Windows has always contained undocumented features. In some cases, they're the Easter egg variety, a little surprise for users who just happen to find them. In other cases, and I think this is probably one of those, something seems to be left in the code for use by the developers. When developers are testing their code, they often build in shortcuts to get to things. I can imagine developers of the control panel wanting quick ways to access those features that were several levels down in the menu structure, hence the God mode. Ina Freed, writing for CNET News, managed to convince Microsoft to give her some of the other trick goods. If you want to use any of them, you'll need a Windows 7 computer, and you need to create a directory and name it in the form of a plain English readable name, a dot, and then the GUID in curly braces. You'll find a list of these GUIDs on the TechBiter Worldwide website. But note, I haven't tried these yet, so you're on your own if you want to try them. Supposedly they work somewhat on Vista, too. So now you're wondering, what's a GUID? A GUID, G-U-I-D, is an acronym for Globally Unique Identifier. It's usually used in reference to Microsoft's Universally Unique Identifier, or UUID, not an acronym, just initialism. It's a standard that Microsoft developed for Windows. GUIDs are used in software applications to provide a unique reference number that can be used to specify a precise access point in software or to create a key in a database. If you look through the Windows registry, you'll find a lot of GUIDs. The keys are intended to be generated at random, and the number of possible keys is so large that the probability of generating the same number twice is minuscule. GUIDs are also used in disk partition tables and replace, finally, the master boot records. On Monday, I had to reboot my phone. Twice. When I got to the office, my phone wouldn't work. Some network changes had been made over the weekend, and I couldn't make or receive calls. After I rebooted the phone, it told me the time was midnight, and the date was January 1st, 2000. I could make calls, but the phone couldn't find the time server, so I had to set the date manually. Ah, oh, the terrible torture of having to do that. Uh, later in the morning, the network engineer came in and made some changes needed for the phone to see the time server, and then I had to reboot the phone again. Who would have thought, even five years ago, that we would be using phones that had to be rebooted? Some people have cell phones that have to be rebooted from time to time. My younger daughter, for example, has a T-Mobile G phone that sometimes goes a bit wacky and has to be rebooted. All of the extra features work just fine, but it sometimes has problem making phone calls. 
Now that seems to me a bit like having a car with a killer sound system and heated cup holders that work great, but no engine. Phones sure have changed. I was involved in a conversation this week about phones and getting email on phones. Most of the people I know can read their email on their phone, but about a year ago I got rid of the early smartphone that I'd been carrying around and got a dumb phone that's little more than a phone. Then I cut my cell phone plan from a $100 per month plan to a prepaid plan that costs about $25 every three months. So I don't read my email on a cell phone. Probably if I spent more time wandering around, I might want to be able to do that. But I show up at the office at 6 a.m. and email is right there on my desk until 3 p.m. when I go to the gym. I don't want email at the gym. After that, I'm at home and usually spend much of the evening in front of the screen. Computer, not television. An email is right there, on my desk. If I go out to dinner or to a movie, I don't want email to intrude. But if you want email on your phone, well, just about every provider offers it. This may be the end of the program for some people. This is a warning. The following is a rather esoteric topic. If you're a web developer, you'll want to skip it because you probably already know everything I'll be discussing here, and more. If you have no interest in knowing how the web works, you'll want to skip it because you won't have any interest in it. So my guess is that the worldwide audience for this next topic is approximately 104 people. So gather around and fill in the empty spaces. Come up close. That's why this wasn't the lead story or even the second item or the third. It's why I positioned it behind short circuits. But if you're curious and you like to experiment, this could be enough to get you started. The more interactive a website can be, the better. This doesn't mean scattering toys around for people to click on and interact with, but it does mean making the site as usable as possible. For example, this year I added a feature that displays larger images of illustrations on the site by hovering them over the web page, if you have JavaScript enabled. This is better than opening a separate window because visitors can still see the underlying page and because the image appears to expand from the thumbnail, then shrink back to the thumbnail. Because it does that, you'll be less likely to lose your place on the page. That's a usability feature. The process I just described is actually a function of your browser. The website downloads the images and the JavaScript commands to your computer. The browser is what executes them. But there's another class of interactivity that lives on the server. Although many technologies exist to create interactivity, I'm going to describe just one to keep this discussion from becoming hopelessly complex and going on until the middle of next week. Most websites, if they run on Linux machines or Apple machines, and even some that run on Windows machines, are on an Apache server. Many people think that server means computer, and sometimes machines are referred to this way. But a web server is an application that runs on a machine. Any given computer may house from zero to many server applications. In the early days, the server was patched or updated frequently, and somebody called it a patchy server. Uh, the name stuck. It just became shortened to Apache. This is what passes for programmer humor. More than half of all the web servers worldwide run Apache, which is an open-source project. For that reason, you can download it and install it for free on any computer. PHP, or using its recursive full name, PHP Hypertext Preprocessor, is a general-purpose scripting language. It was developed to produce dynamic web pages. PHP code can be embedded in HTML. 
When a web server encounters a PHP directive, it can insert information from the external files or from a database into a web page that it returns to the user's browser. PHP is also open source, free, and available to anybody. MySQL may be endangered. It is an open-source relational database management system that is owned by a for-profit Swedish company, MySQL AB, which is a subsidiary of Sun Microsystems. The Oracle Corporation, developer of an extremely expensive relational database management system, is attempting to acquire Sun Microsystems. The U.S. Department of Justice has approved the deal. The European Union has been fighting it. Books are available for each of the three applications, but I recently encountered a lynda.com program by Kevin Skoglund, a developer who's been using PHP and MySQL to develop web applications since 2003. His online program covers the basics of all three technologies and provides a good, basic understanding of how the components fit together, even for students who have no programming experience. So do try this at home. If you are a Windows user, you can quickly and easily install the Apache server, PHP, and MySQL on your home computer. Although this can also be done on a Mac, the process is unfortunately quite a bit more complicated, and I'll leave that explanation to the true Mac experts. You'll need to obtain WAMP or XAMP. Both accomplish the same things, but in slightly different ways. I've been using XAMP with success in the past, so I thought I'd try WAMP this time to see how it measures up. WAMP is a product of France. Download the installer for whichever application you choose. When you run the WAMP installer, you'll be asked a few questions. In most cases, just accepting the default is fine, including the location of the WAMP files in the root of the C drive instead of in the program files directory. You really want this one to be in the root. I recommend keeping WAMP in the root of whatever drive you choose, but you can really put it anywhere you want. Just if it's in the root directory of a drive, it's easier to get to. You'll see the usual installation dialog takes about a minute. If you have Firefox installed, you'll be asked if you want to use it as the default browser for WAMP. This does not change your default browser, only the default for WAMP. Vista and Windows 7 users will, of course, see a Windows security alert from the Windows firewall. If you're using another firewall, you may see a message from it. In any event, you do need to allow access for private networks. Do not allow access for public networks. This would be a very big security concern for your computer. PHP will want to know where your mail server is and will suggest localhost. That's a good location. It will ask for the email address. You can give it any email address you want, but I generally fill in my own address here. When the process is complete, you'll be asked if you want to launch the WAMP server. And yes, you do. One change you should make immediately is to change the password for the MySQL root user from blank to something else. Click the WAMP server icon in the tray and then choose MySQL and MySQL console. You'll be asked for a password. None exists, so just press enter. The first thing you need to do is specify which database you want to use. And from this point forward, this discussion becomes a little too esoteric even for the podcast. You'll need to visit the website, www.techbiter.com. There's a lot of code, a lot of stuff you need to read, and you can do cut and paste if you do this on your computer. When you're finished, WAMP will be up and running on your computer. And WAMP includes Apache, PHP, and MySQL. You'll be ready to learn more about how these three work together. And if you want to do that, I can highly recommend Kevin Skoglund's PHP with MySQL Essential Training 
from lynda.com. Thanks for listening to Tech Fighter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.